You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. This discussion arises not from our Nature and Culture Symposium, as the earlier podcasts have, but from the sheer good fortune of having our guest on campus this week as a guest of the Sydney Environment Institute Sites of Violence Research Project. So it's my pleasure to bring you this conversation with Kari Norgaard. Kari is Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. Over the past 15 years, she's published and taught in environmental sociology, gender and environment, race and environment, climate change, sociology of culture, social movement and sociology of emotions. Her current work focuses on the social organisation of denial, especially regarding climate change, and environmental justice and climate work with the Clarick tribe on the Klamath River in Oregon. So, I did a Google search on the Klamath River. It starts in Oregon, it ends in California, and according to my quick Google search, it's the second longest river in California. So, it's a significant river, and it has a bunch of dams on it, four of which, again, Google tells me, are going to be deconstructed starting in 2021. So, Google gives me the stats. As we like to say, white people love numbers. It's 414 kilometres long, that's 257 miles in your language, and it discharges 475 cubic metres of water every second into the Pacific Ocean. So, again, I say this is a significant river, and this information is all so damn clinical. Can you tell us, as best as you can, from your collaborative work with the Carrick community, how the Carrick describe the river? What are the contrasts with the Google descriptors? And what forms and informs these contrasts? Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for starting off with such a lovely question. (laughs) So, of course, you know, I am not Karuk, and I am not Native. I'm been working with the tribe since uh, about uh, 2003, and so, yeah, um, what I understand is not the same as if you had someone from that community sitting here, but for sure, there's a sense of the river as as alive, as animate, as um, having, uh, you know, just intimate connections with everyday life, with every aspect of everyday life, so there's a t-shirt that I've seen people that's been made up of um, the Klamath is my um, my pantry, my counselor, my um, recreation, you know, my shelter, all of these things. So the folks that I've been working with see themselves as and talk about themselves as fix the world people. So their ceremonies, which they do in conjunction with the Yurok uh, tribe that's just downriver and Hoopa, um, has to do every year with, with renewing and fixing the world. And that... Some of those ceremonies involve, for example, drinking um, from the river, which at this point is not safe to do um, because of the toxic algae behind the, the dams. And um, there's all kinds of challenges that the river has. So the work that I've been doing together with folks in the Karuk Department of Natural Resources, especially Ron Reed, who was at the time the lead for the relicensing project when we first started working together, um, and more recently with other folks, um, has been really around, um, I would say, trying to bring healing and trying to bring visibility to 
the intimacy of the ways that people's lives are connected to that river because so much natural resource policy developed by non-native people as sort of you could imagine from looking at the Google description, so much of it um, is very divorced from the the intimacy of how he, people interact with the river and how they see it and how much it, it inter intersects with human uh, social and political and spiritual and cultural life. What is a relicensing project? Yeah, so I don't know um, how, how this compares in Australia, but in the United States, uh, dams are to be operated in the public interest, and so there's um, the FERC is a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and so they'll give a license for dams, and then those licenses come up for renewal every, you know, X number of years. It depends on the dam or the project how frequently that renewal is. So, the way that I became involved in working with the Kodok tribe was around the dam relicensing, and my colleague uh, Ron Reed, who's a traditional dip net fisherman. He had been going uh, for one week every month to talk about the uh, the impacts of the dams. Um, it, from where he lives, it's about a two-hour drive to the nearest stoplight, and so many of these meetings are happening at a great distance. And he is away from home, you know, for um, you know one week every month for multiple years, and trying to give input from the from the perspective of his community into what this is. And then the final license application came, and there's actually a picture that I had in my presentation the other day where one of his colleagues, the the all of the environmental impacts, the documents, taller than she is, and it says their conclusion was that there were no downstream impacts of the dam. So all of the kinds of of um, health impacts, cultural impacts, spiritual impacts, political impacts that he was talking about for all of that time was just negated. And that was at that point that he and I started working together. And, and it was really at the conflict, confluence sort of, of indigenous science and Western science, myself as a Western science practitioner being taken seriously where he as an indigenous scientist was not. Um, so kind of out of that racism, our relationship was born in our collaboration, and it has been um, extremely um, meaningful and effective and um, wonderful. So it's, um, we've been getting a lot of traction, but it is uh, not right that it took myself as an outsider, you know, analyzing the data to, for it to be taken seriously. And so is, is that one of the reasons that these four dams are going to be decommissioned? It is one of the reasons. There are many, many things that, you know, have uh, been a part of it. Many communities have been working on it. Many people's lives and careers. You know, this has been almost 15 years of my career, although I, more recently I'm not very, it, most of the work was done earlier on. But for many people, it's, it's a project tr that spanned, you know, decades of their lives. And um, so, so, but yes, the work that we did, um, we, um, the report that I wrote up for them and that Ron and I did that research together, the effects of altered diet on the health of Karuk people, that report, um, which involved looking at how diabetes rates, how rates of heart disease and hypertension, which um, came in the absence of having healthy food, fish, um, how that report, they became the first tribe to claim that dams were giving them an artificially high rate of diet-related diseases, and that made the front page of the Washington Post and got a lot of traction for them. Now you've written a book that is Salmon and Acorns uh, uh, Feed Our People, and you said it was written from a place of outrage. 
And I'm wondering if what you've just said may have led to some of this outrage. But you, that's a very, very long way from a clinical academic approach. So two things. What outraged you so much that it became the driver? And how did it mould the purpose of the project? Um, the outrage that, I mean, I think, you know, if you care about this world, if you care about humans and other beings, um, one can't help but experience love and rage um, on a regular basis. And, um, you know, the work working with the Kaduk tribe has been, um, uh, uh, you know, very joyful, very um, wonderful in so many ways. Uh, and I've learned so much. And um, it's been very exciting because a lot of the things ha we've done have gotten traction. And so there's, it's, very, it's very exciting to do that work. After a certain point, I began realizing that my own discipline of sociology really, well, I had been aware for a long time that sociologists don't take seriously the role of the natural environment in human action. It's, it's just seen as not relevant. It's seen as uh, we can't talk about that because it's too essentializing or there's all kinds of reasons. And, and so this has been what I f first thought I would be writing a book about. And as a result of the work to working with a tribe, I became more and more aware of the ongoing lived reality of racism and colonialism manifest in natural resource policy in very explicit and visceral ways. And, and my discipline, it, several scholars, uh, Kimberly Heiser, Jules Bacon, have been doing some sort of content analysis of how are indigenous people con conceived of in sociology. Almost all of the uses of American Indians, Native Americans, are very pathologizing. It's like, oh, you know, what's wrong with their mental health or all of the drug addiction and these kinds of things. And so this book is speaking back to my discipline about the importance of indigenous perspectives um, on social relations, uh, the importance of understanding colonialism as an ongoing force in in people's lives now, because my discipline really doesn't, it's just beginning. There's only been, settler colonialism I think has been used in the top sociology journal just one time, and it's been a number of years since that paper was published. So my discipline does a very good job theorizing around racism, around sexism, around heterosexism, although there's of course much more, because to my mind you can't think well about those things without understanding their links to colonialism, but it really hasn't yet done very sophisticated thinking vis-a-vis what's happened on in North American continent of vis-a-vis um, -vis colonialism and how that shapes things. So that's the outrage is hopefully from a, um, a place that people can hear. I, I think that if you're too outraged, sometimes it's hard for people to hear what you have to say. So I've, I've, I've tried to be constructive. So you're offering your discipline a way of... Um of moving into considering the ongoing colonial project and to how they uh, consider that in their work? Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, one of the arguments that I'm making is we can't do good theory, that our theorizing is limited without understanding these things and that we will be better sociologists if we understand these things. So I have a chapter that's looking at, you know, some of the areas of my work that you mentioned at the beginning of so, so, social theory on race. A theory on gender, theory on emotions. I have a chapters sort of directed at each of those subfields and how can considering indigenous perspectives, myself obviously not as an indigenous person, but 
Um, but what I understand, I use a lot of data from, from people's voices, from the data that came out of these other policy work, and how can those voices and those experiences enliven and theoretically invigorate the discipline? Okay, so that leads me to talk about your cooperative relationships. Can you tell us about your methodologies? How did you structure your collaboration? Okay, how did you navigate through that ethical terrain? And how did you manage the co-authorship process? Because I understand that, um, that you, you uh, are co-author on this book with um, your friend Ron Reed, is it? And, and what obstacles did you encounter along the way? What, um, what advice can you give us, I guess, as part of the question? That's a really important question because, of course, um, there is just um, strong legacy and ongoing reality of academic uh, appropriation, co-option, and just misrepresentation of Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous perspectives. And myself, as a non-Native person, sort of everything about how I've been raised and what I've come to understand would set me up to do that too. So it really requires um, reflexiveness and relationships. And so early on, actually, when I first, long before I even knew I'd be doing any policy work for the tribe, but I was going to be working in that area, um, a, a graduate student at Davis, a Native graduate student, told me, you should um, develop a relationship with somebody and, and, and uh, who will let you know when you mess up. And I didn't know, you know, who that would be exactly, but as it happened, sometime later when Ron and I first started working together, that is the kind of relationship that I hope we have. I certainly know that um, he's very gracious, and I'm sure that <laughs> I don't hear about the half of it. But um, so one of the things I'll say, though, is I was approached by the tribe, but none of the things that I do in the research has been sort of my idea. It's been very much, this is something we need to have happen, and then, you know, in fact, all the time I'm hanging around with Ron when we were doing the interviews, he was talking about, well, we need to know more about this, and this is this needs to be researched, and this is, you know, what's going on here? And so it was kind of constantly tossing these things that I felt, I heard it as this is something that would be useful. And so then I had at the time access to a number of really excellent undergraduates because I was teaching at Whitman College. So many of those ideas that, that became theses, honors theses for those students and, and later became publications. Um, more specifically, so for a long time it was a policy work I was essentially doing for the tribe. And um, you know, I would say to anyone, you know, there's some, a handful of really good books. Um, build relationships, listen, um, be very reflective, those kinds of things. And yeah, co-authoring with indigenous um, it's practitioners who may not be academics, that's incredibly essential. So many of my ideas um, that, you know, sort of form the storyline of, a, of, a, of an article, those are not from me. Those are coming from, from Ron, from his traditional knowledge. And the parts that I provided was situating that within academic literature, doing the task of typing it up, of formulating it in, in sentences and, and so forth. But so there, there's it's really been a collaboration of that nature. We, um, he's not a co-author on the book. We're a co-author on a number of articles together. But that is a little story in itself because um, the, book, um, the book is copyrighted with the Karuk tribe. And actually, Chicago Press wanted to 
publish it as well, but they wouldn't, they offered me a contract, but they wouldn't do copyright with the tribe, but Rutgers University Press did. And so a real shout out to Rutgers for doing that. But at that point, they weren't able to both give joint authorship and copyright to the Kruk tribe. So it was a, you know, it was a bit of a, you know, there were different, there were uh, decisions that had to be made essentially. But yeah, long answer, sorry. No, no, long answers are good. <laughs> I, wonderful, it's wonderful. Um, you talked a wee, bar, a wee bit on Monday night when you were, when you gave your um, when we had the book launch for you about your your method of review of the material. I wonder if you could talk a wee bit about that as well. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, again, you know, in the context of you know, this, in the context of myself as a non-native person who has, you know, the ability to be publishing something and putting something out there that's going to be seen in a certain way, um, it's very easy, and I'm sure that people will have strong feelings about, you know, as much as I've been tried to be careful and reflective, but this is a community where, you know, each family has their own traditions of knowledge, where there's, people don't all get along. Um, so the some of the people that I'm close to that are reflected in this book um, don't get along well together. And so I've tried to do my best to, um, but I have close relationships and learn from these people. So to, to really um, uh, try to do things in a good way, in the right way, and I don't always know that I have. But that's certainly been my goal. And um, so before... Um, when the book, when I first came to think that that I would like to actually do a book that would speak back to my discipline, as opposed to all the other work I'd done that was really policy work for the tribe, this is something that's kind of more about my career. My, you know, it's not it's not immediately out of that context of their world. And um, so I, I went. I asked tribal council and uh, Lisa Hillman. Um, Lisa Moorhead Hillman was very. She was a real ally in getting that through tribal council and um, twice for, and had multiple steps at the beginning and then once it existed and um, for the copyright there were multiple times that she went to tribal council and assisted with that and she's a director program manager for the Pickyoff Field Institute and does a lot of work on uh, food security and she um, and Lee Hillman who's a director of the Department of Natural Resources read the entire manuscript word for word and you know, gave wonderful, wonderful additions and suggestions. There's one thing that's common in um, in my discipline is you wouldn't use people's real names, but from and there's many reasons for that. But um, it's also inappropriate not to do that because if if you don't, it's like you're taking someone's knowledge and you're you you know that so that's been something that's happened where you'll see these you'll be a picture of a Kadok woman. And it's, you know, it's a particular person, but that name is lost or the informant is not given credit. So I asked people, do you want your name? Do you want, can I use the quote? You know, do you want it used? And so all these kinds of things. So there are layers and layers of review process for individuals who are in the book as well. Not straightforward, quite clearly. Yeah, it was, um, it was uh, time consuming and some people are hard to access. You know, I had to, um, Ron was very helpful in, you know, finding people and, and you know, helping track back and, and getting permission, you know, for people who I might not have been in touch with for eight years or something since I had that, that their words. One of the things I'm interested in that you were you were talking about again at the talk was the the focus sociology has on 
white people on on l- what what sociology has seen as being modern culture and it's it's academic demarcation of anything that is not modern as being something that belongs to anthropologists right so how did you make sure that this was a good piece of sociological work rather than a piece of bad anthropology <laughs> So what I'm saying here is how did you ensure that your work reflects the vibrant living culture? And this is something I'm constantly battling um, to make people understand that that these cultures, our culture, my culture, is vibrant, it's living. So what about the, how did you reflect the vibrant living culture, the practices, the philosophies, the spiritualities, the law, as opposed to an anthropology of archaic, quaint, dying, primitive? Um, Thanks. Well, all of it's happening in the present day, I would say. So, you know, there's um, the because the interviews. So this this book has um, interviews that were part of the FERC process and then other sets of interviews after that. Um, Part of the dam, sort of the testimony that people had about how the dams were impacting their lives, um, lack of fish and so forth. So it's all very living material. And so I think it is very clearly in the present Mm -hmm. And in terms of you know speaking to sociology, I do I do um, use many references from other disciplines. I'm a pretty interdisciplinary person, but most of the you know most of the literature with which I'm in conversation with is soci- sociologists. So that would be you know sort of the way I would answer that. And um, yeah, I think that I think that these divides are. Uh, have some relevance, but they're really what, you know, more interested in, um, I'm interested in traditions and traditions of thought, but I think that that um, certainly the idea that sociologists would only study, uh, quote, modern peoples and that therefore indigenous people cannot be studied by sociologists, which is very much the message that comes across. Um, I think that is uh, uh, unnecessary, naive and offensive. Are you um, are you finding some are you finding receptivity to this idea within your discipline? Yeah, I should say that you know I'm certainly not the only person that's been making such an argument. We do have um, I don't know how people have survived <laughs> because it's a hostile space even for me. But we do have a handful of indigenous sociologists um, who are um, uh, enduring this um, offensive environment. <laughs> Where their people and their their communities are characterized in such um, unuseful ways, but um, so yeah, I think we're actually at a time within sociology where things are beginning to change, and that's very hopeful. I've been part of a group of sociologists, most most of whom were indigenous, who went before the the Council of the American Sociological Association and really. Um, demanded that um, there, there be a section formed of indigenous people, even though there's, and um, ind- for indigenous sociologists, even though there's so few numbers, because that's one of the things that say, well, you have to have a certain number of numbers. And they say, well, if we had a section of that would be dominated by non-native people. This is not the right approach. And so those things are still in progress. But it's um, it's at a time where I think it's beginning to change. We, we just, I know it's been wonderful here to experience the territorial acknowledgments that happen. And I understand, of course, that you know, this can become very sort of de facto and not um, uh, maybe it's, it, 
there's a challenge to take it to the next level. But but this is not being done in the United States in the same way. So we had only for the second time that our main event opened with a territorial acknowledgement. And with maybe for the third time now, it's happened now three times. So it's very new, but it is beginning. That's very hopeful. Mm. That's very hopeful. So in the book, um, you're confronting what you present as a deficit in sociology's ability to engage with the non-Anglo-European subject. And simultaneously, and I suppose not surprisingly, you're also engaging with the issue of colonialism, which we've talked about a little bit already. Well, the issues of, of colonialism, the sort of the past, the present, and the future issues. And it seems to me that each chapter appears on the surface to be encountering the prosaic, the everyday. So fire, science, diet, gender, health. And yet each is also, you're using each as a tool to excavate the system of colonialism, or as Patrick Wolf called it, the process of colonialism, that never-ending process. Can you talk us through the key features of the chapters and the purpose each chapter serves? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, certainly, I mean, this is, again, one of the places of outrage is that how can we not see this? How can... How can we not see this as a part of our discipline? So the first chapter doesn't have a, as much about colonialism. It's more about race theory and how race theory ought to include the natural environment as part of the process of how we construct what, what you know, race as a, sociologists get that race is a social construction and that, that, that is historically constructed. But in that chapter, I look at how the natural environment is part of how that's happened, how what it's meant to be white has been created through the movement of wealth and the movement of natural resources and the reorganization of different species in the system. Um, but I do, of course, touch on, because in the next chapter is moving into colonialism, and I start with race because that's what sociology does understand. So that's kind of trying to draw people from where what they already do. Um, and then the second chapter is making an argument that we have to theorize colonialism as sociologists and colonialism in the natural environment. So I use the sort of the lens of fire policy in this area of um, the, the suppression of fire, which is an incredibly important ecological tool that Karuk and other indigenous people use um, to modify the land has been... Um, uh, you know, they, there's been a violent attempt to stop that. And and so I use that as a way to talk about how colonialism still matters today, how um, fire policy is still preventing that, that fire policy, colonialism as fire policy is still preventing people from living lives the way they want to live them. It's still a matter of sovereignty. And I know that these things happen in this place too. And um, similarly, moving from there, so I draw upon the work of... Um, Dr. Jules Bacon, who has uh, the notion of colonial ecological violence, and talk about how fire policy is colonial ecological violence. Then in the next chapter, how that is gendered. So it affects, um, affects women and men in different ways, and it affects them as women or as men. So um, the, the disruption of the food systems around acorns, because you can't burn, because there's... Um, and then the food, the acorns become wormy. This is a important for, for women. You know, women spend time especially gathering acorns and processing acorns. Or similarly, there's whole sections of grasslands that are now, the conifer trees grow in. And those grasses are incredibly sort of women's foods, like um, bulbs and things that are foods that women would have been processing. And they, those 
aren't happening now because that ecosystem is disappearing. And so what does that do to to the ways that women relate to each other or don't because they're not out doing those activities or how they come to understand each other. So that's where, again, leaning on many other people's voices are telling that story. I'm being giving the framework, but it's through people's voices. Um, and similarly, for sure, health. Uh, that was the original work that Ron and I did was how um, physical and mental health is um, impacted primarily through the dams, but as well through um, through the interruption of uh, fire practices because you can't go hunting um, because it, the elk don't use the, a system if it's too overgrown or it's not good forage habitat, it's not good for calving. So um, all of colonialism is very much um, happening and carried out and sort of manifested from what's happening in the landscape and people are very actively resisting that as well in all of these different kinds of ways continuously, very effectively, and um, it's quite exciting to uh, to be a little part of it. Hmm. So what's suddenly come up for me in that, thank you, um, is who has, who is ultimately responsible for these forested areas, the, the areas are around the river, the areas that are clearly the, the traditional territory of the Karuk people, uh, do they still own it? Is it right? You're shaking your yeah. head. So, <laughs> so <laughs> folks, she's shaking her head. So, tell us a bit about that, and then um, how how this resistance is working. If from the shake of your head, they don't own that territory. Well, it is contested territory, so the jurisdiction is contested. So. Uh, the the state of California will be prior to the there being a state of California. I mean, this is this is you know Karuk, Karuk land, Karuk territory, Karuk people. You say ultimately, I think would would say that they have that that's their responsibility to to those other species and to care for them and to care for that land. But um, there were treaties that were made in California, and they were um, at, right after the making of those treaties. Um, gold was discovered in California, and so the first, as it became a state, the first governors all went back to um, D.C. and said, do not ratify these treaties, and instead really instituted policies of direct genocide, where the state of California reinforced people for, uh, um, reimbursed um, settlers for um, for ammunition and for um, to, to participate in direct genocide. So there are unratified treaties then in the next 50 years after those things were happening, the Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service, was established. And so it is contested jurisdiction. Um, Karuk people um, live in occupied uh, territory. There are now uh, collaborations that are happening. And, you know, as the, the, the failed policy of fire suppression is becoming more evident, has become more evident as well to many people across the state of California, and certainly for quite some time to uh, fire ecologists within, you know, non-native fire ecologists within Western science frameworks as well. So there is movement towards collaboration. So the, there's a, a wonderful organization called the WKRP, the Western Klamath Restoration Partnership. It's a partnership between um, the Forest Service, the Kaduk Tribe, and a local nonprofit, the Mid Klamath Watershed Council. So mostly, was well, a mixed native and non-native um, organization, and um, that employs many, many people in the community. And so, this cooperative has been doing prescribed fire. The the Kaduk Tribe also does uh, fire prescribed fire trainings, and 
through the WKRP as well. So there's there's a lot of parts to that answers mm. to that question. Mm. Mm. And it it's um, I think common to to hear in Australia and in, in Aotearoa, it doesn't matter who owns owns in inverted commas um, the land. The uh, responsibility is not diminished for uh, for the people of the land. Okay, thank you. So you've talked to us about your outrage. I keep on coming back to that because I just love it. Um, but there are other emotions you delve into in your work. And so shame, grief, anger, and hopelessness. And in uncovering them, you do an unusual thing for a researcher, I think, in coming, researcher particularly who comes from a Western tradition, in that you move from the individual to society and then to social structures. And I'd like to know more about what you found and how you got there. Thank you for pointing that out, and I'll just note that you probably have a little outrage yourself. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. <laughs> it can be very motivating. Mm. Uh, uh, motivating. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the work on emotions came out of, again, back in 2003, 2004, when Ron Reed and I were first doing the interviews related to the, the so what are the impacts of these dams on people's lives? He kept saying, you know, we have to talk about mental health. We have to talk about mental health. It's not just physical health. And and so that, of course, makes sense. And so we did do and we did ask people qu those questions. And at some point I was like, okay, this needs to be a paper. And there was a, um, a senior thesis th that was part of building momentum for this this piece of it, too. And it was a paper that I thought I was going to write back in uh, 2008, um, and but it, it didn't actually come out as a paper until I think 2018, and um, and then became a chapter in the book. But it, um, it as a sociologist, sociology. One of the things I love about my discipline is the way that there is this constant interplay between the individual and society, and sort of culture seen as like this middle ground where, and so power is being created or resisted or worked with in all these ways or whatever it is, identity, it's at all these levels. So how we think, we think as an individual, but there's it's connected to culture, to ideas that are in cultural realm and to our interactions that are sort of in this middle realm and then to the larger in, in, infrastructure as well, whether we're in a capitalist society, whether we're in a colonial society, you know, all of these are democratic, all of these things are part of how how we see ourselves in identity, how we think, what we think, and what we don't think about. So that's that part it comes really as a sociological perspective. And the um, so for something like thinking about emotions, you know, there's been work on sort of mental health impacts of environmental decline, and it's been good work that's, but it's very much in more in a either in a psychological mode where you say, you know, is this person have depression based on you know these I th the DSM whatever it is the, the this cataloging of of ideas of what is mental health it's very much a part of really maintaining social structure <laughs> really these are problematic characterizations of good and bad mental health but sociologists have actually really rich nuanced ways of thinking about emotions and power and so that. Um, that's what I was trying to do with this chapter is really, but those those don't have anything to do with the environment. They've never done that kind of work with um, 
with genocide or with um, colonialism? Is it what? Are, how is emotions and power operating in this sort of multifaceted way? And so, that's what I sought to do in this is to bring these things together, so that you know there's um, an emotion like grief. Yes, it, it's something that I might, I, I myself not being Kaduk, but so a particular person, a Kaduk woman might experience that as an individual, but really she's experiencing it as well in connection with her feelings for her children or her parents or her, you know, her other family and her other, other beings that are around her to whom she's connected. And then, and then there's also, it's, it's being um, experienced in the context of a moment in time or of you know, genocide or colonialism uh, happening in a in a larger system that these things are that the grief is experienced. It's not just it's not just personal, mm. and it's also personal. And, and similarly, anger or, um, or you know, any of these other emotions mm. are. So it's part of how how power is operating is through is vis a vis any of the, these emotions and how we again resist. The book's not all. You've got some videos that are part of a public outreach campaign. Can you talk us through the collaborations in this campaign and its goals? And then how can our, our listeners access that material? Um, how have you navigated the process of um, making that knowledge available and how do we access it? Thank you. That's great. So uh, the videos actually are connected to another project that I finished just about the same time. So it's, it's, it's worked quite well, especially in terms of the part of the book is about fire. So the Kaduk tribe has just published their climate adaptation plan, and that is online um, and has a lot of material associated with it, including these three videos that I'll describe. And it's Kaduk Climate Change Projects. I think it's, it's um, if you Google Kaduk, K-A-R-U-K, Climate Change Projects, you'll find it, or perhaps we can even link to wherever this podcast gets uh, posted. And on that site, are, there were three videos that were made as part of the climate adaptation plan. So myself and Bill Tripp, uh, who's the director of eco-cultural revitalization in the Kaduk tribe, are the, the lead coordinating authors of that plan. And many, many people were involved in it. And it's got, it's chock full of fascinating indigenous science and Western science, both around uh, climate change in the clam in within Kaduk territory. And there's a lot about it that's about fire. And so... That's where, because the book also has the chapter specifically that's looking at fire suppression as colonialism, those, those videos are very relevant for that. So there's a two-minute video called Fire Belongs Here. There's a six-minute video uh, called Revitalizing Our Relationship with Fire. And there's a 30-minute video, the word in Kaduk, which I will not be able to say um, without, well, I would have to practice it before I could say it, um, it but it, the English translation is, um, we are caring for our world. So th the lead on those videos, I did participate, but the lead on those videos is Bruno Serafin, who's a, a doctoral student at Cornell, and Stormy Stotts, who's a, or Jennifer, Jenny Stormy Stotts, who's a long-term videographer for the Kaduk tribe. And she has a YouTube channel, Klamath Salmon Media, which um, I highly recommend people look for. There's many, many wonderful videos about this community. And it's great for people to, um, in terms of supporting the community, you know, sharing the information about the ongoing reality of indigenous, that indigenous fire science is relevant today, whether it's in Aotearoa or here in Australia or California or wherever. 
people think indigenous people are in the past and indigenous knowledge is not relevant for today. Indigenous knowledge is centrally needed now. I think there's specifics of fire, fire science that, that are wonderful, that native people need to be doing that work and leading that work. Um, but it's very important for non-Indigenous people to understand and to support that and help make that happen. There's also all kinds of wonderful things about um, ways of being in the world, about uh, our responsibility to other beings and to each other, about the importance of respect and reciprocity that are coming out of Indigenous knowledge systems that I think are vital for non-Native people to, to understand and to uh, learn more about and to begin to practice think about what are our responsibilities as non-Native people to the places that we live, to the communities that are around us all the time. And I think in this time of crisis, more people are beginning to recognize that um, there may be uh, different ways of being that are the more constructive. Absolutely. Mm, which is wonderful. So one of your hopes for the books is that it will help move sociology forward. Why is that necessary? Where are you hoping it leads? What benefits will it bring to the field, to peoples, and to society? I think sociology is a really important discipline. You know, we live now in a time where there's all kinds of climate science, climate science from physical science communities, ecological communities, atmospheric science. It is very important. It's very important, oceanic. But the social sciences are not being listened to as much. And the social sciences have an incredible, and so one of the results of that is we think that you can just put information out there and you'll get a response. Uh, sociology has a lot of good information and knowledge and resource in terms of how to mobilize people, um, what's happening with, um, with in communities, many, many important um, ways of seeing the world within sociology. Sociologists, I want them to bring that knowledge to environmental problems, to climate problems, and to bring that knowledge in the service of communities and the service of indigenous communities. Indigenous understandings of the world are really relevant for sociology as well. And so it, it, the discipline, I think it matters um, in the scheme of things that, um, that we have ways of seeing, these ways of seeing the world, and it, but they need to be better. They need to be both listened to and better. So my outrage has both been, you know, that sociology needs to be more uh, listened to within the larger interdisciplinary conversation of climate around climate change, but it's also within sociology that sociologists need to do more um, understanding the importance of the natural world to everything we study, and, and the importance of the reality of, of colonialism, settler colonialism, and the importance of of uh, centering and really listening to and learning from indigenous sociologists in particular. Great, so you're asking so sociology to re-entangle itself with the rest of the world. Yeah, it's wonderful. So are there other ways that you think sociology might be reformed or advanced or transformed? I think that, you know, I think that for me, having people within sociology, within the different fields that I'm particularly connected to sociology of emotion, sociology of culture, really understanding the role of the natural environment and the role of colonialism. That's kind of the main thing that I hope for. I'd, within my field of environmental sociology, you know, I've just been, I'm now past chair of the section on environmental sociology. The last year I was chair and in my capacity there, I really wanted us to bring 
more, there's been a lot of quantitative work that's very, very good, a lot of more macro work, um, but, but bringing more attention to work on the emotions, um, not just in a, people sometimes think, oh, that's very micro, micro sociology. No, I'm interested, as you noted, in thinking about how emotions are part of everything from what sociologists call micro, meso to macro, both the individual and the social structure and everything in between. So I think that that's really essential. That, that within environmental sociology, we do more on, on race, gender, and, um, and indigenous perspectives. That's great. I've got one last question, and that's that you, ha you discussed with us on Monday night a little bit about hostility from the discipline. And I wonder how you're navigating that, because I don't think that's an unusual experience. So uh, any tips for navigating the hostility? You know, I feel like on the one hand, I've actually been, uh, well, when I first entered, my very first time at the American Sociological Association, I just was like, oh, I can't stand this. It's just a good old boy, white good old boy club. You know, just couldn't, really, really uh, uncomfortable and unwelcome. And at some point, I walked away and I, I was like, okay, I, I want to, you know, take this over, like not like me personally, but you know, just like change this, really change this. And lo and behold, you know, a few years ago, I was asked to run for section chair, and then I was elected, and and I just received a you know the highest award from that field um, this year, this in August. Congratulations! Thank you. So I, I think on the one hand, I have felt like, you know, I've had actually a fairly smooth in a way. Um, path myself through a lot of that hostility. I've certainly been attacked by the right, um, far right in the United States, and and um, but I also think that there is a constant. I know there is a constant um, uh, dismissal of of female voices, of voices of people of color, and um, it is you know we're talking later this evening in Michelle's project around sites of violence. Um, you know, sexual violence, gendered violence, racial violence is omnipresent in our society. It is omnipresent within academic contexts as well, and it is used to keep certain people in power and others of us not. And um, so in terms of navigating that, I think, you know, solidarity. Um, I've been very fortunate, you know, have people around you. I've been very fortunate to um, work in departments where I am very supported, even though there is still all kinds of subtle uh, discrimination. It's pervasive, and it's so normalized that it's hard for people to even see it anymore, right? Um, but but um, having you know having people around you is one of the most important ways um, that support you at, and 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 uh, speaking up for each other and for yourself and all these kinds of things. Um, policies really matter for sure. Carrie, thank you very much for spending your precious time with us. I know you haven't got a lot of time in Sydney, so it's just fabulous for, you, for us to have you here and for you to share and to be so open. Thank you. Thank you. It's been so wonderful, and it's been so wonderful for Sydney Environmental Institute and Michelle St. Anne and David Schlossberg and all of you. It's, I feel very... Um, I feel very welcome, and it's such a wonderful, vibrant atmosphere here. So it's been really a pleasure to be here. Terrific. Thanks so much.